DiscerningHearts.com presents Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Dr. Fagerberg is a professor of liturgical theology at the University of Notre Dame. He holds an MA from St. John's University, Collegeville, and an STM from Yale Divinity School, and a PhD from Yale University. His books include Theological Prima, On Liturgical Asceticism, Consecrating the World, Liturgical Mysticism, and Liturgical Dogmatics. Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. David, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. It is such a gift to have you with us. For many people, we hear about liturgy, we hear about mysticism, but those terms, those actions are unclear to us. We may never have been catechized to that, but they are an important part of our life as Christians, aren't they? Yes, and uh, for everyone, uh, not just the experts in the field, experts in liturgy, experts in mysticism. Mm-hmm. I think uh, everyone is baptized into this, and to uh, grow more as a liturgist and grow more as a mystic is to fulfill your uh, baptismal calling. And it's so interesting you said that about baptism, because I think over the last maybe 20, 25 years, there has been a movement within the Catholic Church, anyway, of apologetics. And I think they have done a beautiful job of giving us what we would call a, a Eucharistic apologetic. There are many Catholics out there who may be able to go immediately to John chapter 6 and begin to understand what, at least maybe, what Christ is doing there with the institution of the Eucharist. But I think it's difficult for many to understand exactly what happened at baptism. So when you say when it's a part of what has occurred in baptism, I don't know if we have a really strong apologetic, as it were, or even a catechetical understanding of what happens at baptism. And I think it may be because uh, we speak as though baptism was a once-and-done event, like you're uh, pickled in holy water until Judgment Day and then set on the shelf. Mm-hmm. But uh, baptism, in fact... Uh, starts the process. It's commencement exercises at college, which means some part was finished, the catechumenate was finished, but now is uh, commencing a, a new life. And that life is ascetical struggle. It's a spiritual warfare. That life is a mystical enjoyment of God. That life is your uh, liturgical responsibility and duties in the church. Uh, it it uh, starts something and doesn't end something. When you say liturgical and you say mysticism, for many people, that those are two different things. The bringing together of liturgical mysticism, is that something that's ever ancient, ever new? I think that the uh, tradition naturally, theologically, spiritually did this, uh, connected them, mm-hmm. but that uh, we've tended to let them drift apart. And why do they drift apart? That's a, uh, that's a $64 question. I uh, often start my class in liturgical theology with uh, two anecdotes. One of them uh, comes from a colleague who heard that I was coming to teach at Notre Dame, and he said, oh, boy, you like liturgy. Wait till you see a football game there. Mm. Mm. The second anecdote was uh, I was once standing in a commencement exercise, cap and gown, faculty lined up in the hallway waiting to march in. The band was starting to play. And the person behind me, knowing that I did liturgical studies, said, uh, you must like this sort of thing. Hmm. 
I'm afraid that both of those people and both those anecdotes have an idea of liturgy which uh, is commonly held and which I protest is too thin. Mm. It's defining liturgy as uh, being fancy, being formal, uh, making gestures and movements that uh, really don't have any meaning, but we're supposed to and we don't know why, but we'll go ahead and do it. If that's your definition of liturgy as simply ritual and uh, repetition that's kind of void of meaning, but we've inherited it, that doesn't make for a very uh, fascinating uh, Sunday morning. Go, stand up, sit down, check in, check out. I have uh, struggled to thicken the definition of liturgy. That's my metaphor. I know it's odd. Hamburgers are thicker, encyclopedias are thicker, but I'm talking about liturgy, the concept of liturgy being made thicker. Also theology, and now also the idea of asceticism and mysticism, thickening that definition so that it actually concerns one's life. One doesn't step in and then step out. Robert Taft has a great quote that uh, says something like, a ritual performance is acting out what should be a basic posture of every moment of our lives. So uh, once a year, Elizabeth and I celebrate our wedding anniversary, but it doesn't mean I'm not doing anything in my wedding for the other 364 days of the year. Mm -hmm. Ritual expresses what should be a basic posture of everyday life. And my attempt here is to say that what you do on a Sunday morning liturgy should be an expression of what you've been up to, what God has been up to in you for that past week. You bring it in to the sacred. You go back into the profane. You bring it back to the sacred. That's your uh, inhaling and exhaling, your uh, respiratory system, the liturgical respiratory system. And what you bring back is struggle, asceticism, and delight, uh, mysticism. I think people are hearing terms now like just going for that thickening, we hear terms of the liturgical year. We hear the liturgy of the hours. Those encompass our entrance into daily life, our 24-7. It infers that there's something happening all the time, doesn't it? The uh, sacramental jewels of our liturgical life we wear. Marriage for some, penance for all, we hope. Some for uh, sacrament of orders. These give um, identities. And they're not identities that you uh, pick up and set down. The wedding rite is 15 minutes, but your marriage is 50 years. The baptismal rite is 15 minutes, but your baptismal life is 50 years. Your liturgical life ought to engage Monday through Saturday as well as the eighth day of Sunday. The uh, Greek word liturgia Schmemann defines, uh, Alexander Schmemann defines as uh, the work of a few on behalf of the many. That's a nice uh, summary definition of all those uh, Greek definitions that one could find in a big book. Schmemann just boils it down. The work of a few on behalf of the many. Oh, but it doesn't mean the work of the priest on behalf of the congregation. It doesn't mean the work of the congregation, never mind we don't need the priest. I think it means, first of all, the work of God on behalf of the world. The work of three on behalf of the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. That's liturgia, the work of a few on behalf of the many. And if we are to become liturgists, we become Christ's apprentice and are joined to his liturgy. I sure hope that when I go to church, it's not Fagerberg's liturgy that we're doing. What a bore. 
I sure hope it's Christ's liturgy that we're doing. And that doesn't just mean, oh, you must like this sort of thing. Let's uh, strut up the aisle and sing a little bit. Christ's liturgy would be his love entering our hearts so that we would do the actions of Christ in the world. Traditional definition of liturgy is uh, to have two components, the glorification of God and the sanctification of man. What does Christ do? He glorifies the Father. How does he do it? By rescuing and sanctifying us. Well, that then is a task of a liturgist. You, baptized liturgist, are supposed to glorify God and sanctify, make holy, rescue, redeem, reconcile uh, your neighbor. I thought it was so compelling. You were showing us what we think is liturgical and what we think is mysticism. Right. There's so much division. I mean, we, it, it, it's not even just those two terms. We have divided up so much what used to be holistic. You know, and of course you say that term holistic, the whole, the, the universality of it, or the Catholic nature of it, that we freak out because we think, oh, that's holistic, that sounds new agey. Well, it's, oh, here I go, it's ever ancient, ever new. It's, it's been actually, when we go back to the, the earliest expressions of the church, and not only the, in the Gospels and the, the epistles, but also in the writings of the fathers, it it was always understood that way, wasn't it? I think so. And uh, why would they have it and we've let things drift apart? I am uh, thinking while you make your point that it's because everything was directed towards a certain end. There was a telos, a teleology. The uh, telos of a watch is to tell time. The telos of a knife is to cut. Well, what's the telos of a human being? Deification. Adoption. Uh, being taken up into the circulation of the life of the Trinity. How do you make that journey? That's liturgical. That's ascetical struggle. That's uh, the discipline of spiritual warfare. That's mysticism. That's theological in the uh, way the Eastern Fathers defined theologia, a union with God. The objective here is union with God. Well, if that's the telos, the teleological end is our union with God, then everything, not just Sunday morning for 55 minutes, everything in our life and all aspects of our life, liturgical, theological, ascetical, and mystical, those are the four that I've thought of so far. I'll I'll try to come up with some more in the future. But all of this uh, should be united towards one end. It's like... um, disparate rays coming together in a laser in order to um, cut steel. Uh, But we've let the light just um, diffuse in the room. We don't have any uh, laser-like focus to our... John Chrysostom says that the secret plan of God... Oh, what's the secret plan? That would be worth knowing. The secret plan of God is to have man seated on high, to raise him up and to uh, be seated next to him in heaven. Well, that's what Christ accomplished. Uh, His ascension is human nature ascending to heaven so that it could engage in a liturgical celebration that the book of Revelation describes inside and out. I can't help but also think that in that lifting us up, he had to come down to get us. Right. And, And we are dust of the earth. And so who are we that he should care for us? This is a um, 
balance between incarnation and ascension, Christmas and Ascension Day. I uh, joke with my students that without ascension, you only have the beginning of the story. The completion isn't there. The ascension is as important. And so I encourage them to put up ascension trees and send ascension cards and give ascension gifts to one another. I don't know if anybody's taken me up on that yet. To uh, awaken, uh, you cannot desire what you do not know. You must see in order to want it. If we're meant to be sons and daughters of God, then a son of God had to become visible. And that's the incarnation. Then I like to add that this uh, descent, in order to make the ascent possible, the descent goes lower than we think. It doesn't just go to the manger in Bethlehem. One step further down, below ground floor, there's the basement. I'm talking about Hades. This is where Christ goes to find Adam and Eve, shackled, mute, captive to Satan and death. And in the harrowing of hell, Christ blows open the gates from the inside out and then starts the ascent to heaven. The um, push-off point for the ascent of the human race to heaven is from that ground floor of Hades. So we're talking here about death and resurrection, darkness and light, Satan and Christ, egocentricity and agape. That's the, the great mystery, isn't it, in so many ways, that because of that yes at baptism, to that openness, to that entrance in the divine life, we end up becoming a part of that, even though we may not realize it. There we are back at the baptismal font again. Mm-hmm. What a surprise. Hmm. The uh, image that came to my mind for describing liturgical mysticism was that I wanted to connect personal mystical life with the liturgical sacramental life, the connection that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. How could I picture that? There's a uh, book on uh, liturgy by an Eastern Rite Catholic named Jean Corbon, who takes the imagery from the book of Revelation of liturgy as a river flowing from the throne of God. Oh, it's not like uh, something that I'm trying to uh, produce. Liturgy isn't my production. Liturgy is the river of life flowing from the throne of God, and I imagined it landing first in the church in order to make this mystical body of Christ. It lands first in the baptismal font, but the font fills up, and the river of liturgy overflows the lip of the baptismal font, and it hits us, and now it becomes our personal liturgy. Besides the public church liturgy, There's an interior heart, personal liturgy. And I thought that's liturgical mysticism. That's liturgy happening at an interior, mystical, spiritual level. That's a, uh, an attempt to connect, to connect liturgical mysticism with the work of the church. I surely am not suggesting that uh, there are two tracks here. And some people like church and priests and a lot of uh, incense, and other people like to go in their room and pray by themselves. No, no, no. The uh, interior heart personal liturgy must be connected to the exterior sacramental uh, public liturgy. We'll return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fackerberg in just a moment.
Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. Just the way you describe it, the liturgy has to be happening not so much outside of us, which it does, and that's important, right. you know, in sensory, and every, uh, that's who we are as a people. But it sounds as though liturgy happens inside of us, too. My teachers used to say, uh, you are the rituals that you do, and you are the stories that you tell. Think about it for anything you want, a family identity. Um, now we have grandkids, and so we watch them doing what we once did. And uh, they have dinner together, and they read Goodnight Moon 634 times and tell stories about the grandparents and the great-grandparents. In the stories told and in the rituals done, you become who you are. You take on an identity. Well, we go to the public external liturgy in order to do those actions to receive the body and blood of our Lord, to give praise and glory, to join our voices to the holy, holy, holy that Isaiah overheard the angels say, to hear the stories of our ancestors, Abraham and Sarah and Moses, Miriam. They're our stories. Well, that Public activity, the ritual, liturgical, ceremonial activity, gives us an identity. The point is that you don't leave it at the door of the church as you leave. Then I'll pick it up again when I come in next week. 
that is supposed to be creating who you are. You are this liturgy that you've been doing. To that end, that's an action that is springing forth from us, we think, we think, may not necessarily be the case, correct? C.S. Lewis has a uh, great solution to the classic Augustan-Pelagian controversy. Is it grace or is it uh, free will and works? And in uh, the story of the uh, silver chair, better make sure I got that title correct, Jill Pohl and Eustace want to go back to Narnia. Eustace can't figure out how we would do it. Maybe we should draw some uh, markings on the ground and uh, we could uh, say some magic chant and they conclude, no, Aslan probably wouldn't like that. But uh, maybe we could call his name. So they just say Aslan, Aslan, and then they find themselves in Narnia. They get split. Jill Pohl, who has never met Aslan or been in Narnia before, finally meets the lion. He says that he called her in to do something. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, uh, you must be mistaken. Uh, We were calling to somebody. I don't know who that was. And Lewis's line put in the mouth of the great lion is, uh, you would not have called to me if I had not been calling to you. That's how liturgy gets started. Liturgy is an opus dei. It's the work of God. He puts into us his desire for the Father. This is called prevenient grace. It's the work of God, though it's the activity of human beings. That was a line that uh, just appeared on the screen when I was writing something once, and I uh, liked it. Uh, Sometimes you don't know what you plan to write. It just shows up and you're as pleased with it as you hope the reader is. Mm-hmm. Liturgy is the opus dei. It's the work of God, though it's the activity of human beings. But mm-hmm. it's his work which is being done. I hope it is anyway. Otherwise, um, as Flannery O'Connor said about the Eucharist, if it's just a symbol, uh, to hell with it. To sleep in on Sunday morning. Uh, never mind. It must be that liturgy is this work of God. I know that people like to point out that liturgy on its surface there uh, changes and develops over time, but I always think if it's the opus day, and you think that liturgy changes, then you have to be wondering what new opus the old day is up to these days. <laughs> Wait a minute, no. He's got one dual task, to glorify God and to sanctify man. That liturgy doesn't change. Or oh, the expression develops, and the expression is different in the Latin or the Byzantine rite but it's one liturgy. If the liturgy has changed, then uh, the gospel has changed, then the church has changed, then we're, uh, we're just the Jesus club, and it's not uh, the liturgical foundation anymore. On that liturgical foundation, it, you know, I think that's why it's so important to understand the connection to mysticism, because if we think of ourselves, I'm going to speak out of my own experience, I'd like to think it was long ago, but you know, sometimes it creeps back up again. If I'm real about it, I've become an audience as opposed to a participant. And we can talk about that at more of it another time. If liturgy is that, then what mysticism is for in the hearts of many, which I think is, I personally think it's tragic in some ways that it's something that's for other people or it's at a state that is way over there, and I'm too simple, or I'm too complicated, I could never be a mystic. 
And it seems as though that's almost a you could call it a diabolical lie because at the very heart, the church always understood you. You were baptized into the mystical body of Christ right there. Yeah. You know, we've made some progress on it in uh, the way we use the word saint. We understand that there are saints, but that we are all called to sainthood, that uh, the baptized saints. We've made advance on it concerning that word. I think that the same can be done with this notion of mystic. I'm not denying that there are extraordinary mystics. Goodness sakes, how could I? But I'm called to make some, even if I'm trailing them far behind, I'm called to walk the same path. When I was working on the book on liturgical asceticism, the phrase that came to mind is that we in the world, I caught myself in the world, we in the world, do the asceticism differently, but we don't do a different asceticism. The monk who has left the world does the asceticism in a different way, but he doesn't do a different thing. That means that the question is, how shall I live asceticism in the world? And I could get some lessons by the experts, the athletes, the extraordinary one who has left the world. I could get some lessons from somebody who has investigated the uh, activity of the human heart. Well, similarly, I could get lessons from the extraordinary mystic, even if I didn't experience or express that mysticism in that same way. It's not a different thing done. It's a thing done in a different way. I think it gets to a point where we might fail to acknowledge or understand or whatever the uh, the word I'm groping for is to realize those um, moments of encounter, that mysticism, and maybe we could define that a little bit better for people. We don't recognize that. It, pa- it almost is, what is it that St. Augustine says, the grace will pass by the door. I'm paraphrasing that, of course, but because we haven't been taught, we haven't we haven't been fully initiated. You know, maybe that's why so many people leave after a while because they don't, we haven't fully, fully initiated people, have done our part as church. Am I being too harsh? No, I suppose that at the end of the book, I should have a ready definition of mystic or mysticism, and I don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it has to do with unveiling, right? Uh, To take the cover off something. I think that I avoided a technical definition because I wanted to just let the ordinary grammar be in play. What do you mean by mystical? Well, something more than this mundane. Yeah, there's something more than this ordinary temporal world. It's a good world, but it's not going to last forever. Mysticism is a uh, taste of the eternal. I do come up with a fancy, uh, thick definition of liturgical mysticism, but I don't have a definition of mystic in mind because I would like that definition to be the baptized member of the mystical body of Christ. The way that's acted out in the people that you think of as mystics and uh, go through the list, go uh, down your uh, bookshelf, uh, that's grand expression in individual lives. Here's, here are two um, illustrations you're calling to mind. One is from Paul Claudel, 
he said that God is composing a cosmic poem and he needs just a certain word in a certain line of a certain phrase in a certain stanza at this closure of a part of his poem and you are it you're the word and that whatever god does in your life is to craft you into the very word that he needs in order to make his poem work or fit all right change it from poetry to a visual aesthetic the uh, rose windows in the back of a medieval cathedral is gorgeous array of lights that's accomplished by panes of glass which each are different from the other the yellow isn't the same as the violet isn't the same as the red isn't the same as the blue and the master craftsman needs all of those shades of glass in order to make the image that he wants in the rose window that's you again and interestingly some of the darker colors happen because there's more resistance to the light and the lighter colors yellowish happen because they let the light through more uh, quickly but god the master craftsman needs all of those shades all of those styles of life well the mystics when i say it in the plural are all the various words and stained glass bits but everyone has their place in that rose window that God is uh, creating out of the human race as it's existed across these uh, centuries and centuries. The light shines through lives in a different shade of color because each life is different. But it's the same light. And that's how the uh, variety and the uh, union is accomplished. It's only one light of Christ, but it shines through so many different types of life that uh, there's no end to it. There will be more boredom in hell than in heaven because there are only so many ways you can sin. But there are as many ways to glorify God and to be a saint as there are living individual human beings. Oh, now you're starting to sound like St. Therese. Oh. she say something similar almost when she talked about the flowers in the field? So to the poem in the rose window, I now have to add a horticultural. (laughs) Very well, very well. No, I think that's really true because I think, you know, for many people, and myself included, look at the lives of the saints and we, we could say, I could never be that saint. And so hence, I can't be as holy as they became or what we acknowledge that they, who they are. But then again, when you look at their lives, they kind of struggled with that same fact. I I can't help but think of uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, who, after reading the books of the lives of the saints, went out and tried to be a Francis, and that didn't work. And he tried to be Dominic, and that didn't work. And finally, he just became Ignatius. You think about the things that our secular culture values, self-realization. I want to become myself. You be. Here is yourself in 39 days kind of things. Well, we in the Christian church have an answer for that in the gospel. Yeah, you should become yourself. Mm -hmm. Of course, you're going to have to die to the old Adam. It's going to cost you the price of drowning in the baptismal font. But now you should realize yourself, become who you are. You're not being anyone else except the thought that God had of you, the name that he wants to give you. 
that's the uh, again an image in the book of revelation that at the end the lord will give to each person a white stone with his or her own name on it and that name is the thought the plan that god had for that person well if that's coming then we would be eager for judgment day we're waiting for that time when everything will be put right and names will be restored to their proper owners and we will be taught our true name. I'm uh, channeling a um, sermon by George MacDonald, C.S. Lewis's favorite writer, about the white stone. Uh, and again, Claudel uh, says we our souls hunger for a judge who could put the question to what we're becoming. We're becoming an answer all our lives, but what's the question? Judgment Day will put the question to make sense of all the um, identity that we've been developing. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Fagerberg in our next episode. You've been listening to Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com, or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Pathway to Sacred Mysteries with Dr. David Fagerberg.